Hello, I'm Michael Desch. I'm the director of the Notre Dame International Security Center and a professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Welcome to Outside the Box. My partner in all of these episodes is a distinguished fellow of NDISC, former Senator, Secretary of the Navy, Assistant Secretary of Defense, and Vietnam-era Marine Officer Jim Webb. So uh, we're going to entitle uh, today's episode General Newbold Part 2. Uh, <laughs> Why don't you uh, reintroduce General Newbold uh, to uh, the outside the box uh, listeners, Jim? Okay, thank you. It's a pleasure for me to do that. And uh, also, um, uh, again, a great pleasure to have General Greg Newbold with us today. Uh, he had a, a very strong, uh, commendable uh, career as a Marine Corps infantry officer, commanded units all the way up through division and also uh, had a uh, very uh, important job on the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, Director of Operations, uh, and a real thinker and writer, as, as we learned the last time through. And, you know, the, the last um, podcast that we did uh, with, with General Newbold um, was right at the very beginning of uh, the, in the an increased uh, concern from so many uh, former Marines of all ranks, uh, and particularly in this situation because of the publicity of it from the, uh, the very high-ranking former commandants and, and operational uh, sinks and these sorts of four-stars uh, who were concerned about the uh, policy that was being implemented by then uh, Commandant General David Berger uh, to, in many ways, uh, restructure the manner in which the Marine Corps was operating. And um, I think a good good first question for General Newbold um, is, is really if, if uh, you could explain uh, to people uh, how this unprecedented reaction uh, from so many former Marines of all ranks, uh, from, from former uh, Privates and corporals, all the way up to uh, four stars. How how this happened in a in a in one of the great uh, fighting units in the world over many many uh, wars, uh, when the, the tradition has always been the deference to to a commandant. Just how did how did this uh, evolve, uh, General and Greg? Welcome. Well, thanks, Jim, and thanks to Mike for having me back on. To, uh, take a second swipe of this. Uh, I'll, I'll get to the question in two ways. Uh, it is unprecedented. Uh, traditionally, the Marine Corps retired community is largely a hallelujah course, uh, supporting the commandant uh, passively and actively uh, in ways that will help him carry out his mission and his goals. Uh, in this case, uh, the announcement of uh, new policies came several days after General Dave Berger took over. And uh, they were so <clears throat> uh, dramatically different than what the Corps always performed uh, that it raised not only interest, but concern. But the concern was individual 
and uh, adopted the wait-and-see attitude. But that began to percolate, uh, and communication went from individuals to groups of individuals who shared their opinions. And with that sharing, uh, it became known that uh, you know, the overwhelming majority of the retired community was concerned about the, uh, the direction of the Marine Corps. And it, it wasn't a matter of uh, simple disagreement on uh, purchasing things or personnel policies, et cetera, because uh, the mission of the Marine Corps was established by Congress. Uh, it's their responsibility, and they've been more specific about what the Marine Corps was supposed to do than they have been about the other service. And what uh, General Berger proposed um, was a, a direction apart from what Congress intended. Now, when that percolating began, um, the outreach began to include those on active duty, uh, those on active duty uh, of all ranks, uh, including through general officer ranks at each level. Um, that begat um, a confidence that the views were broadly shared. When that happened, um, several people began uh, making known a disagreement. The first of those is on the podcast today, uh, former Senator of Marine Jim Webb, who laid out uh, the vulnerabilities that were caused by the new policies. And then several other articles came out. And as a consequence, some former very senior leaders, the Commandant, uh, Andrew, and probably our most notable one, and some others began to communicate with General Berger and offer that they had some concerns and would like to talk. This was an evolutionary process and took place over time, excuse me. <clears throat> but it ultimately resulted in a meeting at which uh, several three former commandants of the Marine Corps and combatant commanders uh, met with General Berger and over a three-hour meeting laid out their uh, concerns, all in private. Um, and when it became clear in writing and verbally that he had no interest in paying attention to what they had to say, then that private, private disagreement became public. And in going public, it became uh, uh, probably the single time in Marine Corps history uh, where the disagreement uh, came out into the open. And that caused a lot of concerns, including on the part of those objecting, because it was a very painful thing to undertake uh, but given the gravity of what was happening, um, they thought it was justified. That's the background. Could we talk about um, some of the uh, specific changes that were proposed initially in Force Design 2030, which was uh, General Berger's, um, you know, sort of vision um, for the, uh, the future of the Marine Corps? Um, you know, the, the sort of top line issues um, that 
uh, you know, I suspect got a lot of attention was a reduction, at least initially proposed of about uh, 12,000 uh, Marines. Um, and also some uh, changes in terms of uh, major combat systems, uh, reduction in uh, tube artillery replacement uh, by rockets um, and, uh, you know, doing away with any organic uh, tank uh, capability um, in the uh, uh, future uh, force. Um, Beyond those things, what do you what do you think were the neuralgic issues, in your view, and uh, that of the uh, you know other uh, former commandants and uh, combatant commanders? Well, I'll give uh, a couple of thoughts beginning at the macro level. Uh, the intent of Congress is laid out in uh, pretty clear language, but essentially boils down to. The Marine Corps is supposed to be most ready uh, when the nation is least ready to respond to crises around the globe as a swift reaction force. Um, the labels put on that uh, in the public are the 911 force, the shock troops, the door kickers, etc. And it covers the gamut of everything from humanitarian relief, disaster assistance, through uh, non-combatant evacuations up through small conflicts uh, and major conflicts. Uh, recently, the Iraq wars, Afghanistan, etc. Now, uh, what I've indicated is uh, Congress has made that clear. The change to the Marine Corps uh, took away its ability to do that. Uh, not only by uh, taking away many of the combat systems you described, Mike, but also reducing the amount of uh, requirement for naval shipping that would be the transportation means for getting Marines to a fight or to a disaster. Um, so we've seen evidence that lately when the Marine Corps was unable to respond to uh, crises in multiple areas around the globe. Um, but with that uh, as the beginning, um, the new orientation of the Marine Corps focused on a single threat, a potential war with China, when, uh, as former Secretary of Defense uh, Robert Gates said, uh, the nation has a perfect track record on uh, predicting crisis, and that is that we've never been able to predict them successfully. Uh, so focusing on one theater uh, was contrary to uh, you know, not only to historical norms, but to uh, the intent of Congress. And they did that by making the Western Pacific force largely a missile-oriented force. Now, it's important to have those missiles. So, uh, Marines have neither the history nor the expertise in missile system, where the Navy, the Army, and the Air Force have very deep, broad technical and uh, training and equipment experience. Uh, so, uh, the intent of force design was duplicative and redundant with less 
capable systems. Uh, and uh, you know, many of us uh, retired on active duty thought that was a gamble that uh, not only was dangerous for the Marine Corps, but for national security. And the systems that you've talked about, Mike, uh, um, have proved their worth in the Ukraine fight. Uh, tubed artillery cannons have fired well over a million rounds of ammunition. And while uh, missiles have proven to be extremely important, uh, the Ukrainians uh, say readily that cannon artillery is, has been the decisive force. But the Marine Corps got rid of all of its tanks. And uh, tanks uh, cannot be useful in trench warfare. But if the Ukrainians were able to exploit success uh, beyond the uh, minefield and trenches, uh, they would have to use armored forces like tanks to exploit that. But there are others. Uh, uh, a reduction of a third of aviation, uh, reduction in engineering assets, which the Ukrainians desperately need and without which they could not penetrate the Russian uh, minefields and barriers. So almost all engineering was eliminated and much of the logistic support that's required. Um, when you look at the totality of what was done uh, in, or what, what was begun uh, in exchange for what they said they were going to be able to put on the table, you know, you, you see that the, the, you know, the first rule of wing walking is never let go of what you have before you, until you have a firm grasp on where you're going. Uh, and one other thing that uh, General Newbold um, uh, had, didn't, didn't mention was a dramatic reduction in infantry forces uh, in this, this program. Uh, and most essentially, if, if you look at the, the history of the Marine Corps and where it has been important, uh, particularly from World War I forward, it is that it is the one service that uniquely uh, is, is designed and, and intended to be able to go anywhere and, and to fight anybody on a level uh, less than a nuclear war because they can bring all the pieces of, ho of a homogeneous tactical force uh, when they're needed. And when you start unraveling that, you know, it's a great concern that you are unraveling the dominant uh, reason that there is a Marine Corps. And that's one of the reasons that people step, step forward uh, from across the board and said, whoa, wait a minute, you're designing, uh, you know, a, a, a Marine Corps that is largely uh, uh, intended to potentially fight a war with China uh, on, you know, on uh, on islands that uh, they will supposedly uh, move to and then defend themselves and and be like unseen by all this modern technology. So it it, it was the the danger that we are doing away with the. A principal reason and justification for a Marine Corps as we know it. To place the Marine Corps issue in a broader context uh, at an element, and that is that U.S. law makes it clear that war fighting responsibility and therefore warfare planning is the prerogatives of the combatant commanders, the geographic commanders who might wage war in the Pacific or 
in the Mediterranean or you name it. Um, so the services are responsible for crafting the force responsive to the combatant commander's requirements. In this case, the Marine Corps did not uh, discuss these changes with the combatant commanders, but rather undertook that sacred responsibility on themselves, or that more probably their leadership did. Uh, and it was not vetted through the combatant commanders who could only uh, inherit the force that Marine Corps leadership designed and went even beyond the Department of Defense because those small islands that we talked about belonged to somebody. And the Marine Corps leadership couldn't assume that they would be able to land and occupy islands that are sovereign territory of another country. This was not discussed with the State Department or with the other countries before these decisions were made. And as you can imagine, putting a, a, a U.S. force on an island um, may cause that island or that territory to be a target. And so uh, it was quite a lean forward and an inappropriate one. So if I could just you know, from my outside perspective, you know, try to frame the uh, issues at stake. It, it seems to me there are two big issues. One is, you know, the whole question of whether we ought to put all our eggs in one, uh, you know, Indo-PACOM uh, versus China basket. Um, and, uh, you know, that, as General Newbold points out, uh, raises, you know, both... Uh, uh, potentially uh, legal issues in terms of uh, the role of Congress in, uh, you know, uh, laying out the uh, purpose uh, of the Marine Corps and also prudential questions, as he said, you know, is it really uh, the most likely uh, scenario for the uh, Marine Corps um, to be uh, fighting uh, somehow uh, in the uh, Western Pacific against China versus all of the other things it's done uh, historically, including recently. Um, but the second thing uh, that maybe uh, you and Jim might say a little bit about is, let's assume for the sake of argument that we think that the Marines have to craft a uh, major role um, in a China contingency that both politically and strategically, uh, if the uh, Marines uh, cannot argue that they'll play an important role, that could be uh, bad for the Marine Corps and bad for the country. Um, what about the, uh, you know, the vision uh, of 2030 as uh, outlining uh, the role for the Marines in that potentially very important uh, contingency. Uh, would you uh, argue that, uh, you know, some of the legacy force would remain important for that? Uh, you know, is there a different strategy from the one that seems to be behind uh, the proposed changes uh, that, uh, you know, it's worth rethinking? I mean, is this also problematic, I guess, put it simply in your view, uh, even from the perspective of the main uh, mission that seems to be driving it? Um, you know, I don't think it's our place to uh, 
sit here like armchair, uh, you know, uh, commanders, operational commanders and say what will work and what won't. But I want to emphasize something, and that is from the active duty Marine Corps, we're not talking about the, the Marine Corps that preceded Force Design 2030 now being a legacy force. We are talking about it being the traditional force for any scenario and not just the Asia force. And they worked that out. The combatant commanders worked that out. But I, I can tell you that uh, the, the uh, uh, commander of the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force uh, and uh, generals of, the, of those sort of their active duty um, expressed serious reservations about the implementation of this um, uh, with the, uh, you know, with the uh, higher ups in the Marine Corps. Uh, and General Newbold, I don't want to put you on the spot that either. I'm, I'm not sure we need to talk about operational environments here when, uh, when we're uh, really just trying to lay out uh, the overall missions of uh, where where the Marine Corps might be needed anywhere, anywhere. They can work that out. But General, didn't mean to preempt you there, but I wanted to make that point. Um, and, and that's all uh, very appropriate. Um, to Mike's point, you know, it, it's easier to challenge than solve. And given that, uh, you know, it's not the duty or and it would be out of place for the retired community to propose uh, or craft what the Marine Corps can do. Um, I, I would say that uh, it starts with the combatant commander, commander and that the Marine Corps can provide forces, small and large, uh, to give the combatant commander a wide variety of tools, essentially the Swiss knife, Swiss Army knife, to help them. Now, uh, in this case, uh, I would give an analogy that relates to World War II. Uh, the United States was not ready to penetrate the interior defenses of the Japanese Empire at the time, and only through uh, sequential operations is able to move forward when uh, the United States gained air superiority, naval superiority, and only then was able to use ground troops. And that, uh, that parallel might be useful in thinking how the United States could uh, prepare for a Pacific fight. Do you think all the combatant commanders, if they were polled about this, would have the same uh, view. You know, again, this is sort of a hypothetical, so maybe it falls into Jim's Monday morning quarterbacking, but- uh, uh, Actually, I, mean, I think it is. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, like I, Ronald Reagan used to say, I don't do what ifs. You know, yeah. we, we can't go to put ourselves in the minds of all these combatant commanders. And let's, let's move a little bit uh, more into where we are now and into some other issues, because I think with, with General Newbold here, there's a, there's a good opportunity for us to discuss a, a situation of the American military, not just in the Marine Corps, but some of these other issues that are, are really uh, common across all the active duty military lines, and they relate to political uh, control of the military. Um, but uh, just really, really quickly, General, I mean, where do we where do we go now uh, in terms of preserving what are strongly believed to be the 
you know, the, the defining characteristics of the Marine Corps. And then we'll move into some other uh, discussions. Well, let me, let me ask, are we talking about the organizational or the cultural aspects um, how, how, you know, how are we left here with the strong uh, concerns that were laid out during uh, General Berger's uh, time as, as commandant and how we're going to move forward and, and try to, uh, or how, not we, just us, but how uh, the future of the Marine Corps will be decided in the, the next few years? Okay. Um, the... Prospective commandant of the Marine Corps uh, has been nominated, and that nomination is with the Senate right now. Uh, we know the individual, and we know what he's said publicly and privately. Is um, uh, the former number two in the Marine Corps, the Assistant Commandant General Eric Smith, has been a, a strong vocal supporter of Force Design 2030, um, but. Now he has an opportunity himself to implement new policies and directions should he choose uh, within certain constraints. The constraints are uh, that there is momentum, strong momentum to implement Force Design 2030. And most of the divestments, or all of the divestments practically, have already taken place. Um, and it's his responsibility to prepare budgets for the future, but he inherits a budget that's already in place. So there are constraints there. There are also constraints because Congress has uh, given approval to what has uh, occurred so far. Um, to his credit, General Smith is uh, reaching out to a wide variety of people, um, not only to his subordinates and a refreshing change, but also to combatant commanders, another refreshing change, uh, but to many in the retired community, not just those that have been most public uh, with their concerns, but also uh, notable individuals that are people like former commandants, combatant commanders, a secretary of defense, a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, uh, people like that in order to get their views. So I applaud that. He's absorbing the information, and we'll see what he is able to do. Um, there's a possibility that he will uh, review previous war games and, and plans and conduct new ones, uh, because the, uh, the statement has always been made that Force Design 2030 is not locked in concrete, it is malleable, and can adjust as they discover new things. So while he's been publicly very supportive of force design, he also has shown some refreshing uh, openness about hearing other opinions. General, what of the divestments do you think are locked in stone? Uh, or, you know, the decisions about reallocation. And what do you think uh, is still uh, up for discussion at this point? I mean, uh, uh, Force Design 2030, uh, you know, was first laid out three years ago. So it's a lot of water under the bridge and uh, a lot of decisions um, that have been made in the uh, three years since then. So we're down the river a little bit. The question is, how far down that river? 
Well, I'll give you a couple of examples uh, in each case. Um, in one case, Marine Corps armor, that is tanks, have been totally divested. Matter of fact, uh, I expect quite a few of them will go to the Ukrainians. Same thing with cannon artillery. Majority of cannon artillery that the Ukrainians have from the U.S. came from the Marine Corps. Those are very expensive assets, and restoring them would require enhancements to the budget that are unlikely in the short term to restore those levels. Same thing with uh, things like aircraft. Although there are some aircraft that have not been retired yet, but there are some major commands uh, who would be shifted from a maneuver force to a missile force, and that decision could be suspended and reviewed and, and we hope reversed. Um, but a lot of the decisions have enormous budget implications. Um, to that, I would only say that uh, you know the path begins, the long journey begins with the first step. You know, our discussion of the uh, uh, named or incoming commandant, a new commandant succeeding General Berger, uh, you know, sort of uh, alludes to the elephant in the room, which is that uh, uh, he's not going to be confirmed uh, by the Senate um, anytime soon, or at least as long as uh, Senator Tuberville uh uh, maintains uh, the uh, hold he's put on this and the other four. I believe it's, is it all general officers or just uh, four-star uh, officers? Um, but behind that, it seems to me, and this uh, segues to your very interesting uh, article in military.com uh, in July, Inconvenient Truths for the Next War, is Behind this is the culture wars that divide the country uh, are uh, finding their way um, into uh, the military. Um, and uh, uh, I was really struck uh, in your piece uh, about you know, how you documented the tension between democratic politics uh, in the country um, and uh, military necessity. Do you see this as just a continuation of some of those other uh, uh, incidents that you laid out, especially the Doolittle Board and Project 100,000? Or is the state uh, of that tension uh, greater now than ever before, do you think? Uh, in response to your last question, Mike, I think the tension is greater than it has been in memory. Certainly. Um, the, the way I, I see this is on the basis of what the Supreme Court and other justices have ruled and the Congress has decided, and that is the military is a unique organization. And when you talked about the democratic process, that's little d democratic, in which um, the policymakers and the lawmakers of our country decide on things that are uh, positive for the general good. And they can do that and they can uh, change things and protect people in, in ways that are very beneficial, and they have. In the case of the military, though, the Congress and the Supreme Court have ruled that the 
military is a unique institution with uh, very particular requirements for things like discipline sacrificial service. So it is anything, quite frankly, it is anything other than a democratic institution. Democratic values that are grand for the country and the world uh, don't work particularly well in a military where you may have to ask people to do decidedly uh, uh, things that are contrary to human nature to undertake risks and may well result in individual dying, uh, don't allow for votes and for canvassing, uh, things like that. Uh, and they require uh, seniority and things from non-commissioned officers all the way up. Uh, and that's why every member of the armed forces takes an oath. And the oath makes it very clear uh, that the responsibility is a is a very both a very dangerous one uh, and a very sober one in commitment to respond to the orders of uh, people that are required to carry out the mission. Now, in in this most recent case, there have uh, been a series of policy moves, not just this administration, but going back and series administrations, as you pointed back, and generations worth of decisions that have implications. And that article, I pointed out historical examples of where uh, policymakers intended good, uh, but the consequences were not only negative or deleterious, uh, but were bloody. That is, Literally thousands of young American loyal patriots died as a result of this uh, unintended consequence of poor policy decisions. And I pointed out in a series of events, uh, the first one uh, was the Doolittle Board named after the very uh, heroic World War II Air Force Army Air Corps General Jimmy Doolittle who uh, after World War II was commissioned to, to look at discipline in the armed forces as a consequence of those decisions and the momentum that resulted from those. Uh, good order and discipline uh, became extremely lax, particularly in the U.S. Army. And, uh, and when we were called upon to try and help defend South Korea from North Korean invasion, the forces that first went in uh, were not the hardy, gritty soldiers that won World War II and consequently were overrun, embarrassed, uh, and uh, a lot of casualties resulted. And only after that did they begin to restore the kind of very hard training, uh, the tough discipline that resulted in uh, a, a very robust force that could stand up against uh, what was then a uh, very third world military force. But there are others. I, I noted the uh, uh, disaster that was called Senator Jim Webb and I experienced uh, after Vietnam Project 100,000, where Senator McNamara decided that it would be a good thing for our country if we brought in 
uh, people that were unqualified, largely mentally, to serve in the U.S. military, uh, some of whom couldn't read and write, uh, a number of whom could not speak English, uh, and uh, frankly became cannon fodder and uh, suffered losses widely uh, different from the traditionally recruited force. There was, uh, you know, instances in World War II as well, and uh, all this leads to my judgment that policies that uh, the last three administrations have undertaken uh, that have weakened uh, a culture of the U.S. military that is essential uh, to not only standing up against the foreign military, but just as importantly, to deterring an enemy force. Because uh, an enemy, a potential enemy, makes judgments about the resilience and the grit and the toughness of their opposing uh, forces. And if they miscalculate, if they assume, as others have, that the United States uh, is weak and can be defeated, uh, then they'll uh, undertake uh, war or conflict uh, that we shouldn't have to suffer through. I'll stop there and see what questions you might have from that. I don't think it's right to say that culture wars are finding their way into the military. I think the, the military has particularly since the Vietnam era become uh, something of a laboratory often uh, for different types of culture wars. And it has become more intense uh, in, in recent years uh, with political control of the military, those sorts of issues. But let me, going back to uh, what uh, uh, General Newbold said, uh, talking about the first months of the Korean War, when I was Assistant Secretary of Defense, I was trying to assist in how we were going to evaluate medical readiness if we had a war, uh, stop-start war uh, at that time in the 1980s, as they did in, in Korea. One day you're in peace, the next day, boom. And I had a, a lot of my research assistants go tabulate all of the uh, uh, the, the casualty uh, casualty rates in the Korean War. And that first month or so of the Korean War, the the uh, ratio uh, between killed and wounded was the highest since the Civil War. And part of that was medical apparatus being available, medical care being available. And part of it was exactly what uh, what General Newbold was saying. And it was a, an unprepared force on the ground because of other issues that were uh, being discussed, disciplinary issues, et cetera, that had grown lax after after uh, World War II. Um, but now it's it's become quite a quite a different thing. And and and. Perhaps now on both sides, I think you mentioned the Senator Tuberville, or you were on the verge of it, that Senator Tuberville's hold. Uh, there are uh, there are uh, issues on both sides of that. I'd like to hear General Newbold talk about uh, General Newbold talk about that. And the other is we're seeing a very weird trend among the. Um, I'm not going to call them the, the, the left wing, but among the more progressive uh, sides in the political process in terms of uh, what how the military should be 
totally constructed. Who should be in there? Who should not be in there? Uh, what is a, a white ex extremist? Uh, you know what? What it, there's a you know one of the the uh, the uh, comments that has really been going around among the uh, veterans community at a time when the army has missed uh, its recruitment goal by twenty five percent, which is a huge number. And when you have people coming in from the Pentagon testifying why this is so, they give you all these other reasons. We got full employment, we got medical uh, issues uh, who want to go in, uh, we have the wars, there, there are pieces of, of truth in all of that. But when the Secretary of the Army has uh, made a comment that really followed along the lines of uh, uh, a statement that was first made, I think back in 2017 by uh, a fellow at uh, the Center for New American uh, Security or whatever that that group is talking about the, the the worry of having the American military and the in the volunteer system become a warrior caste uh, that she didn't want to approach second generation uh, enlistments. In other words, it, you know, it's, it was a danger somehow to society that if you're building a, a, a warrior caste based on, on uh, families that have had a military tradition, that it's dangerous. And, you know, it's, and, and then they want to go at the census uh, numbers and try to have a military that, that, you know, is the same as the, uh, uh, you know, the uh, demographic makeup of the country itself. That's very dangerous. And one of the reasons it totally misses, in my view, uh, the traditions of people who go into the military. I'm a seventh generation. <laughs> you know, I had five direct ancestors fighting a revolutionary war. Is that a bad thing? And the other thing is when I was getting the data to put together the uh, post 9-11 GI Bill, uh, it took me a year to get the information. I'm an old manpower guy from having spent five years in the Pentagon of uh, what, what is the attrition rate? What percentage of the people who first start in the military by the end of one enlistment say it's either, you know, they have left before the end of it or they're, they're not going to uh, continue as a career. And it was more than two thirds in the Army and the Marine Corps and more than half in the, in the, uh, the other so Navy and the Air Force. And that's not a bad thing. That's not a warrior caste. That is military tradition, family, citizen, soldier, military traditions. And all of the, the times that my, my family has been in, in the military through the course of our history, only one, my father, ever, ever spent it as a full career. So they are really totally misinterpreting why these people want to come in and serve. And they should not be excluding them or insulting them. Now, General, can you help us on both of those issues? I think I'd like to hear your thoughts on the Tuberville situation and also on this concern about uh, you know, the different way of looking at the, the demographic makeup by, by design from the top. Well, those are not only very good uh, points and questions, but extremely important ones. Uh, let me try with uh, Tuberville, Senator first. Coach. There are two sides of that issue. He has put a hold on all of the general officers who have been nominated uh, by the administration for senior positions in the military. And he has done that because of a Department of Defense policy in which 
members of the military who wished to have an abortion but no longer fit into the window of opportunity within a particular state will be transported at government expense to another state uh, to have their abortion and will be given the time to do that. Now, the senator disagrees with that, so he has prevented confirmation of those officers. Uh, in doing so, there are a number of uh, very serious consequences that occur. Uh, it interrupts the budgeting process because people who would occupy those positions and be able to make decisions cannot. The budgeting cycle works on a very precise timeline in the Department of Defense, and that one has been stalled. And I would argue that uh, the decisions can't be with made, made with clarity or purpose, future purpose. But it includes, uh, for example, the chiefs of the uh, all the services and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It also affects uh, any planning that uh, may take place or priorities for uh, responding to the Ukraine crisis or to a potential conflict in the Pacific, uh, personnel policies. Uh, so there are an entire a series of issues that are either put on hold or, or, or made with much less clarity. So it is very serious. Uh, it's very consequential, and uh, you could say that those uh, are harmful. But let me give you another side of it. Um, all of that being true, uh, not backing away from the criticism of the words, uh, let me describe what this is really about. A central ingredient to serving in the military, and why it's called service, is that those individuals uh, give up the comforts of civilian life for a structured, disciplined uh, society and culture that relies on individual accountability. And from the very first moment when uh, citizens uh, join recruit training, uh, they are taught that they are responsible for their actions. And uh, not only as an individual, but for contribution to the team, to the unit, uh, and for ultimately our national security. Now, in this case, we have people that have made judgments about whether they'll engage in activities that could leave them pregnant. So there is the first step in their judgments. They made the decision, and they made it full aware, uh, fully aware that there may be results from that. Also decided not to use protection that could prevent unwanted pregnancies. So they made a second decision there in judgment. Again, individually accountable. The third decision they made is that almost all of the states have a window of opportunity for abortions that can be short or long, but in those cases, uh, you can bet that the individuals know what those windows are, or certainly have very open and uh, helpful access to those that can tell them that. And in these cases, the individual uh, declined to participate uh, for whatever their reasons were. 
so they fell outside the window. So the, there are at least three decisions that were made with individual consequences in which they showed uh, insufficient judgment of public. So in that case, uh, what the Department of Defense has decided is, despite those errors in judgment, we will take care of you. We will pay for uh, your travel, and we will give you time off from your team, your unit, from your individual responsibilities, so you can take care of something you should have previously. And has thereby sent a signal that individual accountability is situational. And that's a bad signal because uh, each of these individuals is a member of the team. And when one individual is not carrying their load, the others have to. And uh, so I guess what I'm, I'm saying is uh, shame on the senator for doing it. Uh, shame on the individuals for uh, not showing uh, more mature judgment uh, in those several steps. And uh, the Department of Defense uh, um, has shown little judgment in uh, indicating that it's without consequence. Because in each of those cases, there is a middle ground, in which case the Department of Defense could have said, you've made those judgments. You can do it at your own expense. We'll give you the time. You can take your portion of your annual leave, but you have to pay for it. So shame on all of us, uh, which I think is a, uh, uh, a fair judgment. But what this tells me is that the, the culture issues that really are dividing the country now uh, are in a way, um, I, Jim is absolutely right. The military hasn't been, um, you know, shielded from the culture wars, uh, you know, throughout its history and especially from World War II. But now we're dealing with issues and the abortion issue, I think, is a, uh, a good illustration of this that in a way will be uh, even harder to resolve uh, in the context in which we debated uh, previous culture war issues. So the, the issue, for example, um, in uh, you know ending uh, exclusionary policies on people based on race or sexual orientation were debated largely in the context of military effectiveness, which at least was uh, a common framework. Uh, the abortion issue, I think, is going to be very hard to settle on that score uh, or even really think about on that score, which in a way makes it even more intractable. And I think uh, uh, a lot of the other culture issues that divide the country uh, are in that realm as well. And, uh, you know, they're going to affect the military the way they're affecting uh, all of uh, the rest of American society. And they'll be much harder to uh, resolve in a way that I think people can live with. Well, let me make a, uh, an additional comment on 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 this issue as someone who served on the Senate Armed Services Committee, um, there are, there are well many people um, who uh, have the same uh, bottom line that General Newbold has, uh, who 
are have an argument that say we're not saying you cannot terminate a pregnancy. We're saying the government doesn't have to pay for you to go somewhere else. Uh, and when when you put a hold on when a senator puts a hold on uh, a particular issue, a particular area because of an issue, generally, I mean, I've done it. I I, I put a hold on the on the an, an issue when I was trying to get manpower data that the I knew that DOD had, and you know, Secretary Gates took about a week and and it was done. It was, it was only only uh, uh, weapon that I had to get information I knew was there. This is a very dramatic hold. Uh, and at the same time, I'm really curious as to why there has not been more dialogue between the, the Senate Armed Services Committee, in, including the chairman, who's a, a longtime uh, colleague of mine. I served on, on the Armed Services Committee with Jack Reed. That there should be more of an outreach from both sides to figure out a way that this issue might be resolved. Uh, the biggest mistake that was made, I think, in the, the Ukrainian war was for this administration, this president, to immediately, uh, you know, brand uh, Putin a war criminal and, and close the door for negotiations that might have had a better, a better uh, uh, outcome. So, the, you know, there's something needs to be done from both sides in order to resolve this. And, you know, the heels are dug in on both sides. And, you know, we're going to have to sit here and watch on that. Now, now uh, General, what do you think about the other issue? What about a warrior cast? <laughs> are we part no. of a warrior cast? Your, 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 your father was a career military officer, I think. Uh, the, uh, so was Brian. Yeah. Yeah, our fathers were both Air Force officers. Yeah. Uh, my wife was an officer in the Marine Corps. My brother, uh, his his son, uh, my wife's father, uh, etc. Yeah, I, all same here. Same here. My son was in Iraq as an enlisted Marine rifleman. Um, it's tr family tradition, but it's not a warrior caste. It's something totally different. How how can that be? You know, it communicated to people who were making people with with some authority. I know a secretary of the army who were making that that uh, comment. Uh, you know, it was without understanding the the cultural traditions in the military. Well, I'll be very frank. It astounds me that somebody in her position would make such an impossibly naive and uninformed statement. Um, because regardless of your, of your views on it, the military can't, is having trouble recruiting now. It could never approach the numbers it has now uh, and requires them unless uh, the sons and daughters and, and relatives of people that have served in the military were endorsing it as a positive uh, choice for that time in their lives. So it, it, it was... Uh, ridiculous on the standpoint of pure recruitment. It also uh, didn't appreciate military culture because if you take the recruiting aside, those that have sat at the feet of, of members, uh, family members, have learned something about uh, duty, honor, service, uh, and have appreciated what the contract will be if they join. So they are, in a sense, better prepared when they uh, 
enlist or commission in, in the, uh, the military. So bad judgment, uh, but fairly typical where, uh, you know, people follow uh, political and ideological commitments before they appreciate national security requirements. Yeah, and again, I'm tempted to say that's what makes me pessimistic about this phase of the culture wars. I think you're absolutely right, both you and Jim, about the uh, uh, positive role uh, of you know the military tradition um, and the military culture. Um, but again, for a lot of people on the other side of the barricades in the culture war, it's not about military effectiveness exclusively. It's about a lot of other things that they think are really important that actually uh, have very little connection to the uh, important issues that uh, that you're talking about. Um, and I just, you know, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I see uh, this being a, a continuing problem uh, that'll be hard to resolve in the old way of, you know, uh, deciding whether a particular change is, uh, you know, good for military effectiveness or not. I think military effectiveness, in a way, has become politicized as well in the, you know, in the sense that some people, that's the ultimate, uh, you know, criteria about when it, whether any change like this ought to be made. And for other people, it's not uh, that important. And but, you know, I, 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 I don't, I don't disagree with your, your, your statement, but uh, people tend to forget that the military has, has been probably the most responsible institution in this country in terms of absorbing uh, social change and putting it into the system without having, you know, people, you know, misunderstanding the nature of the, the, the military culture and what it brings, even into the operating units, by the way, when, you know, from the things that uh, General Newville was saying. I, I grew up in the military. Uh, I was in the military when it became the first institution in this country uh, to, to uh, in any kind of segregation, racial segregation, 1948. Uh, with uh, President Truman, uh, we went through a lot of turmoil. Uh, you know, during during the time that I was on active duty, and during the time of uh, General Newbold's uh, service, and and uh, the the military has ability to adapt because it has a bottom line, and the bottom line is you got to work together. And the next day, whether you like each other or not, you're going to go out and do something. And after a while, you you get used to, to dealing with each other, and cultural barriers break down. Uh, and you, you cannot, uh, you know, judge that from the outside and you have to trust people on the inside. And it's not easy. It's, it's not, uh, you know, it's uncomfortable and it's uncomfortable now. But, you know, it, it, it requires from the political side an understanding also of, of the, the traditions and the ways that the military is able to perform its functions. Well, you're preaching to the converted with me, um, but as somebody who lives in a very different institution, that also is pretty unrepresentative. Well, of, you uh, see there free. now, I think maybe maybe <laughs> we've got a maybe we've got an educational cast here that, you know, we need to break it down with the next generation and yep. make sure yep. that 
you know, the, the, the American demographic census is, uh, is shows up not just in the students, but in the professors. You know, yeah, I mean, that's you, how silly you, this you, you is. You want to end a is. faculty meeting really quickly, uh, <laughs> argue that political <laughs> diversity ought, ought to be uh, given equal weight to other forms of diversity. But I, I'm sorry, General, I interrupted you with a <laughs> sassy <laughs> comment here. No, there's a, an unstated uh, additional issue we haven't talked about, and that is, okay, if you're right, and the military has unique requirements, and sometimes political judgments by either party um, are contrary to the requirements of the military, what are the senior military leaders doing to educate the senior political leaders, the political appointees, and the members of Congress to the requirements. And uh, that's fully 50% of the problem because senior military leaders are not showing the moral courage. Totally agree. Totally agree. Uh, to, yeah. you know, to say, now, uh, Madam Secretary, uh, I see your point there, and it would be good if you know, the nation's demographics were represented and uh, more broadly uh, input into the military. Uh, we can all applaud that, but let me tell you what the consequences are of a policy like that. And, uh, and that is a duty of senior leaders. It's why they're promoted to their ranks. And if they don't stand up and, uh, you know, educate and inform and advise uh, that we're going to have poor policy decisions. And, and that's what's happened. So as long as I'm throwing out shame on a number of uh, groups, let me throw out uh, one onto senior military leaders who uh, have not stood up to perform their duties in this world. Well, we've covered uh, quite a range of issues uh, over uh, the uh, past hour or so. Um, Jim, did you have anything else or do we want to wrap up at uh, this point? I, I think this has been a really uh, useful and good discussion. And uh, in general, I appreciate your, uh, your being with us today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Outside the Box. We hope you've enjoyed spending this past hour with Senator Webb and me, and we encourage you to tune in again next time. To catch up on past episodes, please visit ndisc.nd.edu backslash events backslash outside the box with hyphens between them, or look up the Notre Dame International Security Center on SoundCloud.